We're continuing our sermon series this morning. Uh, A.W. Tozer wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. So when you bow your head in prayer, what comes to your mind? What is your mental image of God? What kind of God do you pray to? You know, there was a, there was a study that a sociologist Christian Smith several years ago, uh, they did a study on uh, kind of the secular culture and how people view God. And uh, basically they came back and said, most people in our world view God as either some kind of divine butler or a cosmic therapist in the sky. God can help me with what I need or if I need to feel better, I can, I can talk to my butler or my therapist in the sky. Some people view God as distant or aloof. Some view God as angry. The pagans of Jesus' day, they believed that they had to pray with all kinds of words just to get God's attention, just to see if they can get the gods to do something to hear their prayers. But Jesus says, no, no, no. God is a father who is ready and eager to hear your prayers, more ready than you are to even pray. That's the kind of God we pray to. And so if you're just joining us, we are continuing our series called uh, Ancient Past. We're going through the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer. And uh, last week we began the introduction on the Lord's Prayer, which is the prayer of prayers, the prayer that our Lord Jesus taught us to pray, and it also teaches us how to pray ourselves. And so in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 6, right before Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer, he says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think, this is their mental image of God, they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So when we bow our heads in prayer, Jesus invites us to pray to this loving Father who is ready to hear, who knows what we need, who is ready to respond. And so this morning, we're just going to break down the first line, the, the introduction, if you will, and the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, hallowed be, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And we're going to break that down in three parts. So let's, let's start with our Father. Now, last week I mentioned the importance of the first word of this prayer being our, that it is a prayer in community, in communion with our brothers and sisters, to our Father in heaven. And so from the very beginning, we are set in the context of family, of community, of intercession as well on behalf of all the people of God. Um, so I focused on that last time, so I'm not going to repeat what I said, but just to bring that to mind as we get started. But then Jesus instructs and invites us to call God Father. This is an incredible and wonderful thing. We get to call God the Creator, the Maker. I mean, Jesus could have given any title for God. He has all kinds of other titles and names by which we call the Creator, right, that are perfectly good and right and biblical to use. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Eternal One, the Ancient of days, the One who was and is and is to come. This is the God to whom we pray, and yet Jesus says, call that one Father. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. Don't lose sight of how amazing that is. And we can only do this because God has revealed it, Jesus has instructed us, 
and Jesus had, has made this intimacy with God possible. John Calvin wrote, In calling God our Father, we certainly plead the name of Christ, for with what confidence could any man call God Father? We pray this, we're already praying this in the name of Jesus because He's the one who mediates us, our relationship to the Father. And so Jesus, if you read the Gospels, we know that Jesus had this distinctive relationship with God. He said, the Father and I are one. And He kept calling God Father, Father, which was not original per se to Jesus, but was definitely distinctive in how He talked about God. And so through Jesus, we're invited into this intimate relationship that he has with his Father. Through Jesus, we are beckoned, we are summoned, we are invited to call God Father. And this is why we read the story of the prodigal son this morning uh, in the Scripture reading, um, which some people have said is actually about the, the prodigal father meaning the, the mercy, the, the lavishness in which this father welcomes back his wayward son. And many of you know the story. This younger son, he starts by dishonoring his father because he asked for his inheritance ahead of time. This is something he would only get when his father has died, and he asked for an advance, which was an offense. But the father gives it to him anyway which that's, that's a lesson right there in and of itself. The father gives it to him anyway, and the younger son says he moves into a dis, to a distant country, to the far country. And there in this country, he squanders this wealth and all kinds of wild living. But there's a famine. Things get really hard. He gets a job feeding some pigs. He's hoping someone will just feed him something, and he, he longs to eat what the, what the pigs were eating but no one's helping him. He has hit complete rock bottom away from the Father's house. He's alone. He is helpless. He is somewhere distant. He is far away, far away, and he has an epiphany. Even the servants in my Father's house have it better than I do right now. But I think he's nervous to go back because he plans a speech. He prepares a speech. The speech that reveals that the son is nervous that his father perhaps will be angry, upset, perhaps not even receive the son back. And so he uh, prepares this speech where he says, he plans to say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So then it says he gets up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. I wonder how the son felt at that moment. Perhaps shocked, overcome, still, still overwhelmed by this recep uh, reception. Perhaps convicted by this reception of the father. So he still gets out at speech. And he says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father says, quick. He doesn't even pay attention to what he said. Quick, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Brothers and sisters, 
every time you pray. Every time you take a step towards God. No matter how long it's been. No matter whether it's been five minutes or five years since you've prayed. No matter what you've done. When you begin that prayer, I want you to envision Father God running to meet you. He's running to meet you. He's throwing his arms around you. He's rejoicing that you have taken this step to come towards him. The Bible actually says when you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. So you don't have to worry about how long it's been, what you've done. Your father is running to meet you in this moment to rejoice over you. And this is the image that I implore you, I invite you to have in your mind when you pray, Father, when you pray to God. This is the Father Jesus invites us to pray to. And more than that, Jesus is the one who's made this relationship possible. Now, if you know the whole parable, you know that we did not read the entire thing. There's another brother we left out, right? There's an older brother in the story uh, who hears about this party for the younger brother. Now, the older brother had, had done nothing wrong. He didn't ask for it, his inheritance. He stayed home. He did what his father wanted. He always did what was right. But the father had never thrown a party for him. So he's upset by uh, this party that is being thrown. And when Jesus was telling the story, his, his point was to the religious leaders because they were getting upset with Jesus for leading the younger brother, so to speak, back to the father. They were getting upset with him for that. So it, he was pointing to them and saying, you, you religious leaders, you are being like this angry older brother when you should be rejoicing that your younger brother was lost and now is found. I want you to think about the prodigal son's story if Jesus was the older brother instead. Think about that. In fact, in Scripture, it, there, it's not a dominant theme, but in some other places it talks about Jesus as our brother. In Hebrews 2, it, he's not ashamed to call us our brothers and sisters. So think about if Jesus played the role of, elder, of the elder brother. And I, and I imagine if, if, this, if this played out that we're the, we're the younger son and we've, we've wandered away from God. At some point in our lives or, or, or some decisions we've made, we've, we've gone distant from him. We've, we've decided to do our own thing. We've decided not to make God a priority. We, we've wandered away from the Father's house. But instead of the older brother staying at home, not being concerned about his older brother, the older brother is gravely concerned. And I imagine our older brother Jesus, what does he do, right? He, he leaves his Father's house. He goes into the distant country to seek us out. He finds us there eating our, the, with the slop of the pigs. And he brings us back himself, back to the Father's arm, back to the Father's house. And he dies to make that possible. Jesus is the faithful elder brother. He's not going to leave us in the distant country. He's going to bring us back to the Father's house, back into the Father's arms. And with him, through him we pray, our Father, our Father. Karl Barth said this, It is Jesus Christ who invites us to address ourselves in prayer to God and to call him our Father. Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who has made himself our brother and makes us his brothers and sisters. He takes us with him 
in order to associate us with Himself, to place us beside Him so that we may live and act as His family and as the members of His body. Jesus Christ invites us, commands us, and allows us to speak with Him to God, to pray with Him His own prayer, to be united with Him in the Lord's Prayer. And I would add to that, to be united with Him in this intimate relationship that the eternal Son of God has with the eternal Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has brought us into the intimacy of that relationship. That's what praying the Our Father is about. It's, it's actually not about pray, uh, thinking about our earthly fathers. We are, we are not to take the experience of earthly fathers and then project them and imagine that that must be what God the Father is like. No. Why is that important? Because we move towards our mental image of God. We move towards it. And so rather than in our minds imagining or projecting our fallen, broken, human conceptions of gender or fatherhood, we, we get all of that out of our mind and instead we, we picture this prodigal father running towards the son, running towards you the moment that you turn to him in prayer, throwing his arms around you, embracing you, kissing you, throwing you a party. That's what it means when we pray, our Father. Let's look at the next phrase, who art in heaven, who art in heaven. We have learned to pray to a, to a Father who is loving, who's merciful, knows what we need. He's ready to hear our prayers. And we learn next that this Father is in heaven or in the heavens. Where is heaven? Heaven is simply the place in our universe where God is. It's where God is. Look at this verse from Psalm 33. It says, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all humankind. From where he sits enthroned, he watches all the inhabitants of the earth. Now, in the biblical language, there is a sense in which heaven is a, above us. But we're, we're not talking spatially per se, but we're, we're talking spiritual. Not spatial, but spiritual. It's, heaven is the spiritual realm that is above this fallen world. And yet, it's above us, but yet it's all around us. It's the spiritual realm. And although we may not be speaking literally, uh, this metaphor of height actually, I think, is important. Because God, in some sense, is above us. He is above. He is higher. He is greater. He is almighty. There, there is no one above God. In some sense, this is similar to what we say in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Right? Almighty. He is amazing. He is all-powerful. He is beyond anything we can imagine. He's not just our Father. He's our Father in heaven. He's the Almighty Father. Again, uh, Kelvin is helpful here. He says, The effect of the expression, therefore, is the same as if it had been said that He is of infinite majesty, incomprehensible essence, boundless power, and eternal duration. When we thus speak of God, our thoughts must be raised to the highest pitch. He's the Father in heaven. He's the Father in heaven. Or sometimes we say, our heavenly Father. That term heavenly, that the adjective there is important. It modifies the term Father greatly, ascribing to it perfect power, perfect wisdom, perfect majesty, perfect mercy, 
perfect love. That's why the two have to go together. It's not an earthly father, it's a heavenly father. It's different. He is above all of the fallenness of our world, and he rules it from on high. He's the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. See, we learn in the creed that heaven is part of God's creation. He's the creator of heaven and earth, okay? So heaven is not separate from creation. It's not separate from this universe. It's distinct from earth, but in unity with the earth as one creation. Does that make sense what I'm saying? So what I'm, what I'm saying is they're, they're different realms, but it's one creation, one universe. So therefore, God is not distant. God is not in some other creation. He's, he's in heaven, but he's still with us. He's above, but he is not far away. As J.A. Packer says, God is, it's not in a different place, but a different plane of existence. God is in the same place as us. From heaven, it's also important, too, to recognize, you know, people in the past maybe thought, you know, this God was attached to this particular geographic region, to this, this plot of land, or God was associated with this group of people, or you can find God at this holy temple or this holy site or this particular church. No, no, no. From heaven, God is accessible. From heaven, God is near. From heaven, God is close. From heaven, God hears your prayers. From heaven, God sees all that's going on. It's really an amazing thing when we say He's in heaven. He sees and hears from heaven all that happens upon the earth. He's the Father Almighty. Again, N.T. Wright says, This prayer starts by addressing God intimately and lovingly as Father, and by bowing before His greatness and majesty. If you can hold these two together, you're on your way to understanding what Christianity is all about. He's, he's my Father. He loves me. He's in heaven. He's, he's Almighty. He's my Creator. What an amazing, amazing thing. Our Father who art in heaven. And finally, let's look at our first petition of the prayer. Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. So we've gotten through the, the address, we come to the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. And uh, if you remember in our Ten Commandments series, there was uh, a different numbering system for the commandments, right? Uh, depending on your uh, tradition. Uh, in the same way that there's a different numbering system for the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Some people have seen six petitions, some people have seen seven. Does it make a difference? Not really. Uh, but... Uh, for my Lutherans out there, we're going to follow Martin Luther this time. We didn't last time, so now we're going to be fair. We're going to follow Luther with seven petitions. We're going to see seven petitions in the prayer for the sake of this sermon series. But uh, let me give a little just kind of word of introduction and understanding the, the petitions, the requests of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, because there is a sense in which these three basic things, the, the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer, they all kind of follow a very similar pattern. Um, if, you'll, uh, if you remember in the Ten Commandments, uh, traditionally we think of them as two tables, right? There's, there's, the, there's the tablet over here and the tablet over there. And we got Angela's gray stone tablets, right? right? Those were super helpful. And often traditionally think the, this side is everything concerning God. That I'm not gonna, we're not worshiping any other gods, any, any idols, we're not misusing His name, we're honoring the Lord's Sabbath. And then on this side is everything concerning humanity. 
We're going to honor our parents. We're not going to kill. We're not going to commit adultery. We're not going to lie to each other. We're not going to steal. We're not going to covet. So there's this principle of God, humanity. God, humanity. The same is true with the Apostles' Creed. The first part of the Creed is everything we believe about God, Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, you know, in the Holy Spirit. And then we get finally to the end of the Creed, and it's everything concerning us the Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the life everlasting, and the resurrection of the body, right? I didn't say that in the right order, but you know what I mean. God, humanity. It's the same with the Lord's prayer. On this side, we have everything concerning God, that the first three petitions of this prayer concern God and His cause, hallowing God's name, glorifying His name, the coming of His kingdom and His will being done on the earth as it is in heaven. And then the final four petitions are everything concerning us. Daily bread, forgiveness of sins, rescue from temptation, deliverance from evil. Do you see that pattern? God first, humanity second, God's glory, our good, God's glory, our needs. And this is at the heart of what we are praying when we pray this first petition. Hallowed be thy name. By the way, we prayed that in the King James because Jesus did. <laughs> I mean, I just want to point that, I mean, we say it because it's traditional and we're not, we're not going to, you know, uh, change your habits at this point after 400 years of using the King James Version of the Lord's Prayer. Um, but, let's, but let's be reminded, we, th- those thighs and th- that, that language comes from 400 years ago, and that's fine. It's great. They're, it's good words. Uh, but we, we take it from the King James. That's, that's where that language comes from. It's a version of the Bible from the 1600s. Uh, in this, but in this petition, what we're doing is we're actually summing up the first three commandments. We're not worshiping other gods. We're not, we're not worshiping any idols. We're not misusing his name. On the contrary, we're worshiping him. We're hallowing him. We're praising his name. It's also, we're summing up that first part of the Apostles' Creed as well. Because whose name are we calling to be glorified but the name of the Father Almighty and his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord? That's the name that we want to be lifted up and hallowed. Again, what does it mean to say, hallowed be thy name. That's, that's, a, that's an old word. We don't use it too much, but the word hallowed comes from the same word group as the holiness uh, word group in Scripture. Um, it could be translated, make your name holy, or may your name be sanctified, may, may your name be set apart. We're in a sense praying, may, may your name be set apart and lifted on high from all the fallenness of this, of this earth below. Luther says it means to praise, magnify, and honor this name both in word and deed. Now, if, you, if I can call your mind, if those of you who are with us, back to our series on the prophets, and we were talking about the exile with Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and when God's people were in exile, uh, his name was being dishonored, right? Because God's people represent him to the world around him. And so, God was concerned that people were beginning to draw the wrong conclusions about himself, that God is, is not powerful enough to save his people, or that God does not love them, or, or God is unconcerned for their situation. And so it says in Ezekiel 39, the Lord says, My holy name I will make known, known among my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And 
The nations shall know I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Do you catch that? When God's name is dishonored, misused, or profaned, people don't know who He really is. They don't, they don't draw the correct conclusions about God when His name is profaned, especially through His people. And how many people do you know that are interested in Christ because Christians profane and misuse the name of God? They don't bear His name. They don't represent His, his name well to the world, right? But when God's name is hallowed, when it's set apart, when God glorifies His name, then the result is people will know who He really is. They'll see Him for who He really is in all of His majesty, in all of His power, in all of His love, in all of His beauty. That's what we're praying for. As Scott McKnight says, this is a petition for God to act. The opposite is our cold, shallow choice not to desire or pray for God's glorious name to be established above all names. This then is more about our hopes, our desires, our affections, and our aches than it is about what we're doing or not doing in the realm of behaviors. Again, this request casts light on what we most want to be raised on high, God's name or something else. The petition is about priorities and a request for revival. It's about getting out of this shallow indifference to God's name in all the earth. That I'm actually praying this, that I would, I would join in with God's desire and Jesus' desire that his name would be lifted up and that all the peoples of the earth shall come to know who this glorious God is. This first petition for God's name, his fame, his glory to be honored and hallowed throughout the earth. And I would suggest to you, friends, that the first petition of the Lord's Prayer ought to become our first priority. The first petition is our first priority. That's why it's first. It's the positive counterpart to the three commandments, right? It's, it's honoring His name, it's worshiping Him, it's not misusing His name, but glorifying it, honoring it, hallowing it, spreading the goodness of this name. And once we pray this prayer, once we align our hearts to this desire, we shall be moved to become the answers to it. And this is good news for us because this is what we were made for. Did you know that you're all image bearers? You're all image bearers. You were made in the image of God. You were meant to reflect His glory to the world. Right? That's, that's what we were created to do. The, the Heidelberg Catechism says that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I love that phrase, glorify God and enjoy Him forever, because it, it unites these first sentences of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven. Oh, I'm enjoying the intimacy of my Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. I exist to glorify his name. I exist to bring glory to my creator in whose image I was made. So once we desire this, we, we may wonder how can we participate? How can we participate in hallowing God's name? I'll give you three W words. By our worship, by our words, by our works. Our worship, our words, our works. 
we hallow his name, when we praise his name, when we, what we're doing now and together, we're honoring his name, we're hallowing his name, we're praising his name, and we're realizing the glory and worth of who he is. We also hallow his name when we speak well of him to others, when we share with others the goodness and love of this God who has saved us and redeemed us, who is a loving father running to, to meet us. That's how we hallow his name when we share our, with our words to others about God. And finally, we hallow his name by our works. As Jesus said to us in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. And what? Glorify. Glorify your Father who is in heaven. We shine a light through our worship, our words, and our works. So in summary, friends, we, we bow in prayer to this God. What's your mental image of God? We bow in prayer to this amazing, loving, merciful, heavenly Father who knows what we need before we ask, who is ready to respond to our needs, who, who runs to meet us when we bow to Him in prayer. But we also know that this Father is in heaven. He's powerful. He sees it all. He knows it all. He, he is hearing all. He knows our need. And He's in heaven. He's close. He's accessible. And the first cry of our hearts as we bow in prayer, is that this whole world, this whole broken world would, would grasp the love, the mercy, the almightiness of this heavenly Father in the name of His Son, who has redeemed us and reconciled us and brought us back to the loving arms of this Father.